0: So in this series in 1 Peter entitled Hope Through Suffering I want you to think about this morning there are certain questions that come up a lot for us and the culture for people. Questions like what is your hope? What is hope? How can you be hopeful in the midst of suffering? Why aren't you worried about the stock market? Why aren't you worried about the earth. Why don't you fear death? Why do you talk about salvation? What is salvation? What are you saved from? How do you know that you're saved? Ever been asked any of those questions? So those type of questions, what is your hope in? How can you be hopeful in the midst of suffering? Why aren't you worried when X, Y, and Z happens? Why don't you fear death? So how do we respond when people ask us for the hope that is in us? How do we respond when people criticize that hope? How do we respond when people criticize your faith? How do you respond when people criticize your God? And many of us are terrified to think of having to respond to someone. Terrified to think about how do we answer someone who asks us hard questions? What am I to say? And this morning, I want us to see that the essentials of the gospel are probably a lot more familiar than you think. And many times, defending what we believe can get overcomplicated. Because many times, what the writers of the New Testament did was recite what was pretty familiar to them and to us. And so, I want to encourage you in that this morning that we see that defending the faith does not have to be some exercise for only the special forces Christians. I mean, this is something for every one of us. And as you'll see, it's less like an intellectual debate. I think many times we get the idea that if we're defending the faith, I have to have these set of propositions in order, and I have to come together with this systematized answer. It's a lot less like that, and it's a lot more like the paper boy that used to just read extra, extra, read all about it breaking news Come and see we're called to more of that the Intellectual pursuits. There's very few people who are called to that most of us are just kind of like the paper boys, standing on the corner looking at the headlines look and see this is amazing So I want to recap where we are in first Peter and then we'll get into our text so the last few weeks we've talked about people Uh, Being in the world, but not looking and sounding like the world, not thinking like the world, not fearing what the world fears, but fearing God and not fearing man. Because that is so important, because everything starts with the fear of the Lord. And that is going to be the basis for our text this morning, um, especially in the midst of opposition. So before we get into 1 Peter, I want you to turn to Isaiah with me. Isaiah chapter 8, I want to read a couple verses because Peter is a Jew and Peter is a brilliant Old Testament scholar and Peter's letters are just full of Old Testament quotations and reading through on a cursory kind of surface level, you wouldn't get this, but he's directly referencing Isaiah chapter 8, which is really interesting because there's a parallel to us. And so, Isaiah chapter 8, uh, I'm only, only going to read a couple of verses, but I want to set the stage for you, because this is in the midst of the impending Syrian invasion. The Syrian nation is like, imagine the United States, plus all of Europe, plus probably a few other countries thrown in for good measure, about to march in on this tiny nation. And their king is trying to conquer the entire known world. And so what is God's message for his people in the midst of this? Look at Isaiah chapter 8, I'm going to start in verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. There's so much in these verses that applies to us. The Lord spoke with his strong hand. That is important. It's not a distant God. This is not a proclamation from a God who is not involved in our circumstances. His strong hand is on Isaiah's shoulder. Saying, proclaim this because I am with you. And he proclaims it to his people because his strong hand is still with us. And he's proclaiming it in the midst of this impending pagan occupation. Don't walk in the same way as this people. These people are about to conquer you. Don't take on their ways. Don't walk in the ways of these people. Don't call conspiracy what these people call conspiracy. Don't fear the things they fear. Don't get worried about the things they get worried about. Don't get all riled up at the things they get riled up at. Don't fear them. Fear me. I am the Lord your God. I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the Lord who provided for you in the wilderness. I'm the Lord who will provide for you in your exile. And he's the Lord who is still providing for us today. And his command is to fear him. And not man. Now let's look at our text. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 14 and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts... Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Lord, we can boldly approach your throne because everything is in subject to you. There is nothing in heaven or on earth in which you are not over. You control all things. You are sovereign in every way. Yet you love us and you care for us and you call us according to your name. And you encourage us, telling us that no matter what happens around us, you are still on the throne. We are not to fear man and what man can do to us, but we are to fear you. And our hope and our boldness and our confidence is in you, our Savior, our Redeemer, our King, our Lord. We pray that this passage would encourage us, would embolden us, and would strengthen us in your word. That we would be mighty witnesses to the transforming power of your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first thing I want you to see in our text this morning... Uh, We're really going to focus on 15 through the end of the chapter. What's Peter's pattern here? Where does Peter start in our text? Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. And if, if you skim through, what is sprinkled throughout this text? Christ, Christ, Christ. How does Peter end? Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He starts with Christ being sanctified in our hearts. Then he reminds us of everything that Christ has done. And then he points us to where Christ is now and where he will always be. Peter understands how to defend the faith. You start with Christ. The body is filled with Christ and you finish with Christ. And that's how we're going to look at our text this morning. Because if we try to defend the faith any other way, with our own abilities, with our own creative efforts. It's going to put the focus on us when our real calling is to exalt Christ. So let's start in verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Uh, The language here is specifically sanctify Christ in your hearts. What does that mean? It means to set him apart, make him holy. There should be something about Christ in your heart that is different from everything else in your life. He has a special place that is central to who you are. He is to be sanctified in our hearts, set aside, that nothing in our lives can compare to who he is to us, that nothing in our lives gets in the way of who Christ is. That word also leads to sanctification. How how we grow, how we become more holy is based on how we set apart Christ in our hearts. Also is the same root for sanctuary, place of peace, place of comfort. If Christ is set aside in your heart, if Christ is sanctified in your heart, you will also have a sanctuary there. That no matter what the world does, no matter what happens outside, your heart is in peace. The peace that passes understanding because it is rooted in the holiness of Christ himself. So we're able to sanctify him, him in our hearts and find our sanctuary in him, which will result in our source of hope. Because we are truly right rooted in Christ's righteousness. If he is truly sanctified in our hearts, what can shake that hope? What can ever change that? No fear, no trouble, nothing that man can throw at you is more powerful than Christ. But first, Peter understands you're going to face trials. People are going to revile you. And so it's a mistake to think, all right, I need to get all of this knowledge first before I answer anyone's questions. I need to do more more research, more reading, which you should do. But the first thing is always to sanctify Christ in your heart. Honor him. Recognize him as as Lord. Lord of your life. Lord of your thoughts. Lord of your feelings. Because when Christ is Lord, you won't have to have other people compete for the throne. You won't have to have your own pride compete for the throne. And when When you sanctify Christ in your hearts first, then you can defend your faith then it's not about what you say or do, it's about his power. It's about his spirit. It's about his kingdom. So we have to get that first. Because many times, and I don't know how many of you guys are students of theology, there's a few of us in here, but apologetics or defending the faith is a pretty popular discipline. There are Christians who do a very good job of going to secular universities, who go into different realms, and they debate the faith with other experts from other religions, uh, from secular worldviews. That can be done on a large scale in a college. That can be done in your kitchen table. But if you approach it only as an intellectual exercise, it's just a battle of wits between you and them. The first thing that must be done is to sanctify Christ. And then we can defend our faith. Then we can approach apologetics. All right, so let's back up. Little bit, and we're gonna spend some time in in verse 15. And I'm gonna walk you through this verse because this is really important. Apologetics, it um, comes from the Greek word apologia, which basically means defense. And it's it's not I'm on the defense, it's an active defense of something that you believe in, and this is a discipline that whether you do it on a grand scale or a small scale, that every one of us as a believer should have to engage in? How do you defend what you believe? How do you, how do you answer those questions that people asked you earlier? In your hearts first, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always being prepared. This is not something that you hope you get around to, like many things in our lives, we don't start preparing for them until we have to. This is something we are always prepared for, recognizing that Christ should be on the tip of our tongue. We should be ready for this, because as the world looks less and less like we do, and the world looks more and more like it did to Peter's audience, we need to be ready to defend the faith always. And we read Psalm 119 because it reminds us the importance of God's word. And if you're not rooted in God's word, if you're not approaching him in in, in prayer, if your heart doesn't rejoice in everything that he's done, it's going to be so hard, if not impossible, to defend what you believe. Because you may not believe it as well as you think. Because many times when when it comes down to it, our fears... And our pride gets in the way of us proclaiming what Christ has done in our lives. And that's, that's all of us. None of us are immune from that. So it's something that we need to be aware of. Peter says many times in this letter, be sober-minded, be ready for action. We're not to be people just sitting back waiting for Christ to come. We are in the midst of spiritual warfare and we need to be people who are ready to engage in that warfare. Always being prepared, be ready, be practicing, be praying to give a defense. We talked about that a little bit. It's not a defensive posture. It's a defense of what you believe. It is an active defense. To anyone who asks you for the reason, anyone who asks, why would people ask us? Why would people ask us why you have hope? Why why are you different? Because our lives should be so different that people ask us. Why do you do that? Why do you go to church every Sunday? Why do you not drink and curse? Why don't you just take things that don't belong to you? Who cares? Why don't you get upset when I get upset? Why aren't you freaking out when everybody else is freaking out? People are going to ask you. If you act differently, they will ask you questions. And We always need to be prepared. We should live lives that will invoke questions from others and we should be ready to give the reason for the hope that is in us and this morning that's what we're going to talk about the reason for our hope what is that hope within us it's not a secret it's christ it's him crucified it's him risen it's him reigning our hope is in him and our strength is in him and our wisdom is in him and our knowledge is in him and our ability is in him. If it begins and it's rooted in and it ends with Christ, it's a lot easier than if it begins, depends on, and finishes with us. So that part is quoted often. You're ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you to anyone who asks. But often we forget the beginning. Sanctify Christ in your hearts first. And we forget what comes next. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is not belligerently jumping down people's throats. But this is also not um, timidly uh, recoiling when people revile against you. This word gentle um, is is more like uh, timid, it, excuse me it, it's this word gentle forgot, lost my place here All right. so we, we approach this more in humility than we do timidity so we don't have to be timid but we can be humble now in our culture we have an idea of politeness where like manners have inserted themselves into our Christianity, where we have to say please and, and thank you even when we're defending the faith. Was Jesus polite when he called them foxes in whitewashed tombs? Was Peter polite when he boldly proclaimed he was, he was humble? It wasn't in his strength. But there is, there is a gentle and calm, humble nature when we proclaim the gospel. A meek nature, not a weak nature. Because this is not a weak gospel. This is not a weak message. We are to boldly proclaim what Christ has done in our lives. But we can do it gently. We can do it lovingly. And this word respect here is a little misleading. It's, we talked about it a little bit two weeks ago. It's the Greek word phobos, from which we get fear. It is more fear. And a lot of times, Peter uses this word very often. It is not a fear of people, it is a fear of the Lord. So we are doing this with with, with gentleness and caring toward others because we, we truly want them to turn to Christ. But we're not afraid of them. We're afraid of God. Like he told us in Isaiah, don't fear men, don't fear how they respond to you, fear me. Having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Having a good conscience. Remember that, again, this is spiritual exercise. This is not an intellectual pursuit. And unless the Holy Spirit is working through you, unless you are praying for the Holy Spirit to work, and He works through you, and He works in them, your message will fall on dead ears. Did you catch that? Not deaf ears, dead ears. If the Spirit is not in it, your message will go nowhere. And we're not to fear men. One passage that is so encouraging to me, I want you to turn there in Luke chapter 12. Jesus gives this encouragement to his disciples. Luke 12, verses 8 through 12. Luke 12, verse 8. And I tell you, For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. Jesus knew that these trials would come. Jesus knew that people would ask us questions and he said, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm sending my spirit who will teach you, who will speak for you and will work in the hearts of those who you are speaking to. And far too often when we're given the opportunity to speak about the hope that is in us, our pride gets in the way. Pride in seeking to have the right answer. Pride in seeking to get credit. Pride in seeking to, uh, to, to sound smart to the people we're talking to. Pride in wanting to see results. Or the other end of pride. That fears what they may think about me. Fears that they may not like me. Fears that they may reject me. Forgetting that what we want them to do is fear the Lord, not you. how can we expect them to fear the Lord if we don't fear him first? If we don't fear him more than the responses of men. And all of us have been there. I've been on both sides of this. I've been afraid to share my faith because of what someone might say, how they might respond, how it might affect that relationship. I've been arrogant to share my faith thinking I know more than you and I'm going to convert you by my wit alone. Uh, This actually happened... A couple months ago, uh, we are eating at Sweet Tomatoes. And this guy's sitting by himself. And as many of our conversations do, we're talking about the Bible. And we're talking about church. And he overhears us. And he hands me a little uh, brochure. And anytime someone hands you a brochure, there's, there's always this decision that goes on. And I, I, I look at it. And I look at him. And Sheree gives me this look that she's giving me right now. She's like, you're not going to talk to him, are you? Because I know that look. It's like, I want to go home. It's, it, it's, it's late. You're not going to engage with this guy, are you? And, and I started walking away. I was like, you know what? My initial reaction was the proper reaction. Was he doesn't know the truth. What, what he handed me was against scripture. And I want him to know the truth. That was my initial reaction. That didn't last long because... I realized I knew more than he did. And so it became my own pursuit to show him how much I knew. The man was a Jehovah's Witness. And part of the reason why we start with the document that we handed out on Wednesday, uh, and if you are are a member of this church, we want you to be rooted in, because if you move away from those essential convictions, you, you move away from Christianity. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God. They believe that he is the Archangel Michael. Um, They believe that he is even a lesser God. And that you need to follow their organization to be saved. And you need to continue earning your salvation. And that there is no hell, there is only a death where people are annihilated. All things that are completely against scripture and completely against the core convictions of Orthodox Christianity from day one. And when you depart from them, You become outside of fellowship of Christianity. And so I knew that engaging with him and I started where you should start. Okay, tell me about Jesus. Because really, when it when it comes down to it, what you believe about Jesus is is what matters, because if he's not the son of, of God, he's a liar. If he's not the only way to salvation, he's a liar. If he didn't raise from the dead, he's a liar. The disciples are a liar and we're all liars. If he's not on the throne, he's a liar. If he's not coming again, he's a liar. All those things Jehovah's Witnesses deny. And we sat for a while, went back and forth, and he knew, he was a salesman. He knew his pitch really well. And I was trying to tear his pitch apart. When I walked away, he still didn't believe I had wasted a couple hours of my life, and I realized afterward that I didn't pray for him first. I should have lifted him up in prayer. I should have implored the Holy Spirit to work in me and to work in him, and I did, and I was convicted leaving there that I needed to pray for him, and that some of my arrogance would take root, and that he would run to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the point is, if Christ doesn't get the credit, you do. The point is, if you're seeking people to like you in your gospel proclamation, or you're seeking to win someone with your own efforts, you get the glory and not Christ. But what Peter's saying here is if it's about Christ, beginning, middle, and end, you can have a clear conscience. And if they don't believe you, if they revile you, if they criticize you, that's on them. That's to their shame. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It's not a bad thing to suffer. Christ suffered for us. It's a bad thing to suffer for our own purposes. It's a bad thing to suffer selfishly. So just make sure when people revile you, they have a good reason to. Because if you're reviled for something you shouldn't be doing, you deserve it. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteousness of the unrighteous, excuse me, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Again, Peter keeps going back to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Christ, our example in suffering. Christ is our example in life. In death and in risen life. And this right here, what uh, Peter is explaining, is called substitutionary atonement. And it is so vital to understanding the gospel. Because the atonement, the covering of sin, must be paid before a righteous God. And Christ died for unrighteousness. Not his But ours. And if we don't understand the importance of Christ taking on our sins and us taking on his righteousness, we don't understand the gospel, and our salvation is incomplete without Christ's work. And he did it in our place to bring us to God. Verse 18 is the gospel for Christ also suffered once for sins. He was righteous, we were unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. That is the good news. That is the gospel. When you don't know what to say to people, everyone in this room should know that much. And if you don't, come see me, please. We should know enough to say I was dead. I was unrighteous. He was righteous for me. He brought me to God when I was far away and had nothing on my own. And he can do that for you too if you believe in him. Everyone in this room should be able to give that defense for the hope that you have. Because Christ died. A death in the flesh. To be raised again in the Spirit so that we might live forever in the Spirit. All right, let's keep going. I want to read verses 19 through 20 and then I'm going to explain it. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Let's stop. Did anyone while I read verses 19 and 20 not understand that? Please, please raise your hand. Really? Everyone understood 19 and 20? Okay, because I don't. I I'll be honest with you. Let me explain it to you. I don't know. Uh, I spent all week researching what verse 19 and and 20 meant. And there is no clear consensus. And and the the different ideas are not even close. Uh, Martin Luther called verses 19 and 20 probably the most obscure passage in all of the New Testament. He had no idea what it meant. Everyone I read had no idea what it meant. Uh, most people are convinced that it would have made sense to the early church. Um, but I want to, I want to, I'm not going to spend a, a lot of time here, but I think there's a, a good lesson in this. So look at verses 19 and, and 20. Look at the things that are, that are said here. Um, let's, I'm going to, I'm going to say what we, uh, what we uh, don't know. And I'll talk about what we, we do know. So verses 19, in which he went and proclaimed, uh, in which is referring to the spirit, he went when did he go? Where did he go? We don't know. And he and proclaimed. Was it a sermon? Was it a declaration of his victory over sin? Um, he proclaimed his spirits, it's the spirits of people, these, these angels, or these fallen angels. Uh, they were in prison. Were they physically in, in, in prison or were they figuratively in prison? We don't know because they formally did not obey. When did they not obey? And it goes on and on and on. This is a very difficult passage. And it made my head hurt trying to figure out how do I explain this? So I want to give you some of the wisest words you will ever use in defending the faith. I don't know. And it's okay to say I don't know. But what the lesson is here is not get caught up in what you don't know. Because many times we can say because I can't explain this, I don't want to try to explain any of of, of Scripture. It's okay to say I'm not God. We are people who walk by faith. It's okay to not be sure of every passage in Scripture. But Peter's showing us be sure of the essentials. When you defend the faith, make sure that you know that Christ suffered and died, the righteous for the unrighteous. And it's an important lesson for us because we do this all the time in our lives, right? We could have this amazing banquet and everything is delicious chicken is a little dry. And that's all we talk about, right? We can see this amazing painting. It's this beautiful landscape. And that stroke right there is out of place. And our eyes are drawn to it. And we can't stop looking at the one stroke that's out of place. Many people approach scripture like that. So all this, I, I've seen it to be true in my life. I've seen other people transformed. But this one thing gives me, this one thing I'm confused about. It gives me problems. Um, I know a young man like this. I've been talking to him on and on for months, and I met with him this this week. And Every time I talk to him, it's just heartbreaking. He grew up in the church. His parents were, were, were missionaries. And he said things like, well, I love God and I love people, but I have a hard time with the Bible. And because for him... He can't answer everything in the Bible, so he has a hard time believing everything he can't answer. There are things in the Bible that make him uncomfortable. There are things in the Bible that tell him that people are going to hell, and that Jesus doesn't save everyone, and that Jesus may not even be the Son of God—maybe just a really good guy—and he, but he would still consider himself a Christian. We have to have a difficult, difficult conversation with him to tell them you're not a Christian if that's what you believe. If you say the Bible is not God's word, if Jesus is not the only way to salvation, if there is not eternal punishment for those who re- reject him, then you are outside of Christianity. And you're worshiping a God of your own making. It breaks my heart. But that is... Why what we believe is so important. Why we be rooted in our core convictions. Why we know who Christ is. Because if Christ is anything different than he says he is, he's a liar and you shouldn't believe him. But for us, the Bible can be confusing. We're not God. There are scholars who spend their entire lives poring over scripture who love the Lord and love his word and still kind of shrug their shoulders at certain passages. And that's okay. We don't have God's mind. We don't have to have all of the answers. Some of us, some of you, and I'll be honest with you, some of you will have a basic faith for most of your life. You will know that Christ saved you. You will know that he died and he rose again and he's, and he's on the throne and he's coming. And you're gonna have a hard time understanding much more than that. You are more blessed than the angels in heaven because you've experienced the grace of God. Because you've risen from death to life, and you can say, I am alive because Christ saved me. The angels look down and marvel at what he's done in us. So we don't have to be afraid that we don't have all the answers. So, now that we talk about what we don't know in this passage, let's get back to the text. Let's talk about what what we do know. What does the gospel proclamation look like? What is Peter telling us to focus on? What we do know, Christ suffered. He didn't come to sit comfortable on a plush chair. He came to suffer and die for us. He died and rose to life so that we could die and rise to life. For us, to reconcile us to God. Because without him, there is no hope. Peter tells us that Christ, Christ proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What did he proclaim? We don't know. But what we do know is that every time the gospel is proclaimed, the spirit of Christ is speaking through you. Every time you speak in Jesus' name according to his word, the spirit is doing the work. The spirit of Christ preaches, whether it's from the pulpit or it's over coffee. Trust in Christ's power. Trust in the spirit that he left with us. And that message is one unto salvation. And we preach Christ and we preach him crucified unto salvation. And then we urge baptism. Because baptism is the outward sign of an inward reality. It's not the water itself. It's not any outward cleansing ritual it's showing that your conscience has been cleared by the saving blood of Christ and that you died with him, went into the depths and came out and breathed again new life. And that baptism is the sign of what Christ has done in your life. It is the symbol of his resurrection and our resurrection. And then he goes on in verse 22 to talk about the ascension That not only did Christ suffer and die and raise, that we could be rose again, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he is reigning. Our hope is our righteousness. He is our redeemer, our savior, who has now become his, excuse me, he has now become our king. He has victory over death and we share in that victory. When our savior reigns, he has called us to reign with him. He says that we will forever. Peter goes on here. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through, only through, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Peter wants us to remember Christ's current status. This is where Christ is he is no longer on the cross he is no longer suffering the suffering is done our suffering in a spiritual sense is done we are raised spiritually with him and he is reigning over all things but far too often we view our circumstances only based on the circumstances we forget that Christ is on the throne ever heard the saying navel gazing it's a great saying say it ten times fast but navel gazing is when you look down at your, at your navel. You're so focused in yourself. You're so woe is me that you can't see. You're, you're looking down all the time. Many times we're walking around navel gazing. We're looking at ourselves. But not only does the gospel open your eyes, it lifts up your head. Because when you lift up and you see, like Stephen saw, Christ at the right hand of the Father, getting up saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You see the full picture. The fog is lifted. And if Christ is on the throne, nothing else matters. And nothing else can shake that. And if Christ is on the throne, we can give a winsome and confident defense because we know the end of the story. Christ is victorious, He's sitting on the throne. And whether the person we're talking to believes or not, that doesn't change. And when Christ is victorious in Christ, we are victorious in all the same ways. So we don't need to fear men. We don't need to fear what they will say to us, what they will think of us, what they will do to us because Christ reigns. Our Savior is our King. This last line here actually ties up the theme of the entire chapter. As Jesus is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. We've been talking about for several weeks, subjection. Citizens, be, subject, be subjected to authorities. Servants, be subjected to your masters. Wives, subjected to your husbands. All that is possible because Christ has all things subject to him. Because even if we're subjected to authorities here on earth for a short amount of time, all things are ultimately subjected to Christ. So even when those authorities fail us, he is still reigning over all things and they are subject to him. When the government disappoints us, they are subject to him. When our bosses, our masters disappoint us, they are subject to him. When our leaders, fathers disappoint their, their wives and their children, they are subject to God. He is reigning over them from the throne. So how do we conclude this morning? Our view of everything must begin and end with Christ. If we honor him in our hearts, we remember what he's done, and we take comfort in his current status and our promised future, we can boldly proclaim the gospel. That's what we need to know. And this is what we proclaim. There was a saying that was really popular in the Crusades. The Marines have taken it up. Um, And I want to twist it just a little bit. In the Crusades, they used to say, kill them all and let God sort them out. It's 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 a little harsh. But I would say... Proclaim Christ to them all and let God sort them out. It's not our job to figure, to make someone believe. It's just our job to be the messengers, to proclaim Christ and let him sort them out. And there's a great lesson for us in this. Don't focus on what you don't understand. Don't spend all your time trying to get every little thing perfect. And if I misunderstand one passage that I can't proclaim Christ. The most powerful testimonies are from people who said, I was blind and now I see. I was dead and now I'm alive. I was lost and now I'm found. And Jesus did it by living perfectly for me, dying perfectly for me, and raising, again, to be at the right hand of the Father so I could be perfect with, with Him. Every one of us can do that. And so then when we have to give a defense of our faith, we can speak about what we know. Like Paul. Great, solid, theology deep in everything he talked about but what did paul say i want to know nothing but jesus christ and him crucified we can explain what christ has done any child can explain that and we pray for those who we talk to we pray before we talk to him we pray after we talk to him and we trust that the spirit will not let his word go out void and then the pressure's off of us and christ gets the glory let's pray Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for life. Lord, we deserve death. Our sin had us away from you. There's no way that I deserve to be called your son. There's no way that we deserve to be called your sons and daughters. Lord, let us never forget before the foundation of the world, you were there. Before we breathe our first breath, you wove and knit us together. In the midst of our sin, you loved us. You knew that you would come and die for us and you would raise again to life and bring us with you. Lord, let us never forget that you are reigning and you are over all things and everything is subject to you. Whom then shall we fear? Let us be people who loves you who set you aside in our hearts, who has a hope that is so contagious that people want to know. And let us be people who are able to lovingly, gently explain the hope that we have in you. And we just pray that you would be with our efforts, not for our sake, but for your kingdom, Lord, that you would let us be your hands and feet, that you would bring renewal in life through our efforts and we see the kingdom come and your will be done here on earth we pray in the precious name of jesus in the power of the holy spirit amen